0: Well, good morning. How are you guys doing this morning? Good? Anybody out there? All right. Hey, welcome to Sojourn. My name is Justin. I'm one of the pastors here, and it's just good to be with you this morning, singing with you, worshiping our God. Uh, I do want to remind you um, that you have a little half sheet of paper in your bulletin just to take sermon notes on, uh, and we give that to you so you can be processing and thinking through God's words that's preached, but also so you can engage in community throughout the week to seek to apply Uh, God's preached Word throughout your life during the week as well, so take some time to do that. Let me also just say, if you're new here this morning, we're really glad you're here. Whether you're checking out uh, a church community, looking for a church community to be a part of, or you're just checking out who Jesus is, uh, we're grateful that you're here uh, for whatever reason that you came and hope that you can find a place to get connected here in the life of our church, and I'll tell you more about how to do that uh, at the end of our service today. But if you need a Bible this morning, if you just raise your hand, We'll have somebody bring a Bible around to you so you can have God's Word in your hand this morning uh, and read along with us. And if you don't own a copy of the Scriptures, please feel free to take that with you. Um, That's our gift to you. We want you to be able to read God's Word all throughout the week as well. But before we jump into Hebrews, let's just go to the Lord in prayer. Would you pray with me? God, we come before you this morning and we praise you. Because of who you are. And we praise you because who you are means that you're the God that is high and lifted up, that you are almighty and sovereign over every aspect of our life. But we praise you for who you are because that also means that you are intimately and actively involved in the details of our lives. So, Lord, we we praise you for that, that you're not a God who's distant, not a God who's uninvolved, but you care. And so this morning, Lord, as we dive into your word, into a particularly challenging text, I pray that you would help our minds and our hearts to be engaged, that we would receive your word willingly and excitedly this morning, and by the power of your spirit that you would use it not just to give us a bunch of information in our heads, but that it would trickle into our hearts and transform our lives even as we sit here today. And Lord, I'm guessing that for some of us as we listen to this this morning, that there'll be particular people that come to mind for us. And so I pray that we would think firstly about how this applies to our own life, but then do think about those people and how we can go after them and go to them with the good news of Jesus. And so Lord, I pray that you'd be honored this morning. I pray that your Holy Spirit would work in and through me this morning, not to make much of me or make much of this church, but to to make much of Jesus today. So Lord, we give you this time. We thank you for this time. And we pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. I don't know if you know this or not, but the peak of deer rutting season happens between mid-October and mid-November. Now you may be thinking, what in the world is deer rutting season? Well, deer rutting season is the mating time for deers. Deers? That's not even a word. For deer. Uh, it happens during that time. So, when it's the middle of rutting season, deer are acting crazy. Like doing crazy stuff, which is not great for drivers. According to a New York Times article, nearly half of vehicle accidents involving white tailed deer occur from October to December. The confluence of mating and hunting season makes November the month with the most deer vehicle collisions. And so with that knowledge, they go on to give some driving tips. They say, quote, be aware that deer tend to travel in groups, that they're most active in the evening around 6 to 9 p.m., that they can be highly unpredictable, especially when caught in headlights, exposed to loud noises like horns, or confused by fast-moving vehicles. So this is all good to know because here in Virginia, there are a lot of deer around, But other than a fun fact for you this morning, why in the world are we talking about deer rutting season? Well, my parents know this information too, and without fail, and what has almost become a bit of a joke in our family, whenever my family leaves my parents' house or my brother and his wife leave my parents' house in the evening, amidst saying goodbye, my dad will always say two things, always say two things. He says, be careful and watch out for deer. All the time, it doesn't matter what time of year it is, that always comes out of his mouth. Be careful and watch out for deer. Now, what he's doing in that is a a way of just protective parental concern. He isn't rebuking us, but he is warning us. But it's not a a heavy-handed warning. It's not a belittling warning. It's a loving warning to pay attention, to take note because he cares about us. Now, as we come to our text today in Hebrews chapter 10, we see not a warning to watch out for deer, but we do see a warning to not walk away from Jesus. And it's also a warning that's born out of love. It's full of concern and care, concern for God's people in this little church that he's writing to his original audience, mostly made up of recent Jewish converts who have come to follow Christ, believing that he is the Savior of the world, who died for them on the cross and was raised again from the grave. He's writing to them because there's a warning here amidst the temptation and difficulty of life that they might walk away from Jesus. But this is a timeless warning. And so it's for us today as well my hope today, my hope this morning, is that we will all see and believe that judgment is real, but that Jesus is better. The judgment is real, but that Jesus is better. And I say that because especially in the culture that we live in today, the world that we live in today, sometimes even within the churches, a culture that doesn't like the idea of judgment. It doesn't like the idea of a God who has wrath towards sin. It doesn't like or believe in the reality of a hell, an eternal separation from God. It's the same culture that's often okay with giving a head nod to Jesus, like, I see you, Jesus, but I'm going to go on and live my life the way I want to live, kind of putting Jesus on the back burner or on the shelf, living as if Jesus isn't actually King. And so as we walk through this fourth warning text in the book of Hebrews, I hope God will use it to help us to reflect on the immensity of his grace towards us. As much as we think about judgment, and that's what the author is going to talk about, that it would cause us to reflect on and be overwhelmed by the grace we have in Christ. And that we would love one another enough to be involved in each other's lives, to not allow drift to take place when it comes up in our lives or in the lives of those around us. So with that, let's jump into our text this morning. We're going to be in the book of Hebrews as we have been over the last few months. And in chapter 10, we've spent the last four weeks in just a few verses, but we're going to move on starting in verse 26 and read through verse 31 this morning. This is God's word to us today. 4. like the other three warning passages that we've already looked at in Hebrews in chapters two and three and chapter six, this warning is similar. It has a similar theme to it, and the author keeps kind of coming back to these thoughts over and over again, again out of love and care and concern, but there's some additional perspective and nuance to this warning. Again, these are new Christians that he's writing to. They've they've heard the gospel. They've accepted the gospel, believing they need Jesus. But because of pressure from culture and temptation in the world, there's a temptation for them to walk back into a time of unbelief, not following Jesus anymore, setting him aside or disregarding him completely. And so the main goal of this warning and all of the warnings in Hebrews is this, don't Fall away from the living God by believing that someone or something is better than Jesus. Don't fall away from the living God believing that something or someone is better than Jesus. Why is that the case? Because when we walk away from Jesus, we walk away from hope. But herein lies the danger for many of us. It's the thought that when we read a text like this or think of this, the idea of someone falling away from Christ, from rejecting Jesus, is that it's something that happens overtly and abruptly. Like if you're driving down 66 going 65 miles an hour and your tire blows, like explodes And you veer off the road, swerving out of the way with your rims scraping against the pavement, sparks flying everywhere. That kind of instantaneous thing. There's no question something is going wrong in that moment for you. And that can be the case. But the warning I think we need to heed, the reason why we need to heed this warning is because this kind of falling away often can be subtle and quiet. It can be like the slow leak of a tire where you've driven over a nail. And it's poked a hole in your tire, but not actually popped your tire. And slowly over time, more and more air leaks out of that tire, not knowing that there's danger in your car, in your vehicle, the position that it's putting you in as you drive around. So as we see in this text today, we'll see this and seek to unpack the nuance of this warning and the implications for our lives and our community And so I want us to answer two big questions today. The first question is this, what is the warning? What is he actually saying to us and why is it so important? And then secondly, where's hope in this? Because this is just an initial reading of this text. Is is there actually any hope or encouragement in this text today? So what is the warning and where is hope? So where do we see this warning? Really the meat of it is in verses 26 and 27. Let me just read them for us again. He says, For if we go on sinning deliberately, after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. It's important that we understand what the author is saying and what he's not saying. He says, If you go on sinning deliberately, but it's after you've received the truth of the gospel. So he's talking to someone who's already said that they believe in Jesus. They're already following Jesus. He says, if that takes place, you've already received the truth, you go on sinning deliberately, then there no longer remains a sacrifice for sin. So who is he talking to in this instance? Well, he's talking to those who have professed faith with Christ. They've they've verbalized that with their mouths. They've called themselves followers of Jesus. They've called themselves Christian, people who have received the truth of the the gospel. And so this is directed, this warning is directed towards people in the church. But while they've professed faith, they don't possess faith. They, they, They verbalize it with their mouth, but it hasn't gripped their life. They're not gripping and holding tight to it. And that's seen in the fact that they go on sinning deliberately. And deliberately is a key word here. It has the idea of willingly, intentionally, it's a voluntary action. So, this is a picture of someone who knows that what they are doing or thinking or believing is not glorifying to God. It's against his will, it's against his good commands. It's clear to them the path and the life that God has called them to, yet they continue on a path of disobedience, willful disobedience. See, we need to understand in the midst of the Christian life that obedience matters. Not to earn our salvation, not to earn favor with God, but because the gospel literally changes your life. It literally changes your heart. We can't live life the same way once Christ has come into our life. But we know, so we're going to be thinking all that, okay, we got that, but we know, okay, but followers of Jesus still struggle with sin. Followers of Jesus still wrestle with sin. We we still have sin in our lives. So is he saying then that if we have sin, that if we struggle with sin, even besetting sin, that that those seemingly insurmountable struggles in your life that seem to keep pushing you down? Is that what he's talking about? If that's you, then you're damned. Is that what he's saying to you? No, this isn't about believers who struggle with sin because we all will struggle with sin until Christ returns. Our our new nature wages war with our old nature. The spirit and the flesh fight against one another. Not even besetting sin is is what he's talking about. As serious as that is, See, what the author is talking about and who the author is talking to are those who reject God's authority to tell them how to live and who flagrantly continue in their sin. So it isn't a struggle with sin, but an abandoning of Jesus, an abandoning of the gospel, a rejection not just of the tenets of Christianity, but of Christ himself. Rejection of the truth that Jesus is better than anything this world has to offer to you. Now, how do we know what it looks like to reject Christ in this way? Well, he gives us a, a few examples here. He says when people are doing this, when they're deliberately sinning, what it looks like is that they've trampled the Son of God. Trampled! I mean, trying to visualize this, this is an idea of, of stepping on and stomping and stampeding over and crushing him under your foot and wiping your muddy feet on him as if he was a doormat. He says they have profaned the blood of the covenant, a covenant that set them apart, that called them out of the world. They've, they've profaned it, they've desecrated it, defiled it, like taking a cigarette butt and smothering it in the face of Christ. They've outraged the spirit of grace. The spirit of grace who gives life. They've appalled. They've scandalized the spirit. They've offended the source of all life by living a life contrary to what God would call them to. This kind of rejection happens in both word and in deed. It happens in our heads, our hearts, and with our hands. It's a life set on building up our own kingdom instead of God's kingdom where we establish ourselves as the king and queen of our kingdom instead of following the king of kings. It's being conformed not to the character and conduct of Christ, but to this world. This is a picture of a person who has outwardly trusted Christ, but whose heart has not been transformed or changed. And the reason, the way that we know this, what he's starting to get at here, is that we know this by what we see in a person's life. Matthew chapter 15, verses 18 through 20, Jesus is speaking here, and he says this about us. But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person. So this is a person who knows, who understands, who at some point has professed faith in Jesus, but who now displays an arrogant rejection of him. An arrogant rejection of the Spirit. An arrogant rejection of God's Word in their life. It's the epitome of self-sufficiency and superiority if we walk away from him. And Simply put, this is a picture of someone who's embraced worldliness over and against grace. In fact, they've chosen to return to the world that Christ called them out of, to set them apart from. They've chosen to go back to that. But see, this is where I want us to listen up and I want us to pay attention because while all of this can be outright rejection, while someone can take a hard left turn away from Christ, most of the time it starts with a gradual drift. Drifting is a theme that's come up before in Hebrews. It's just like that slow leak of a tire. It comes about subtly. And I see this happen a lot in the life of people who've grown up in the church. They've been around Jesus' things for a while. And maybe they go off to college having professed faith in Christ at an early age, and they go off to college or or out of the house, and that slow slide away from Christ takes place. And oftentimes what you hear in someone's life that's in that situation is lots of philosophical words and phrases, high-sounding words about why they can't any longer believe in the God of the Bible or the Christ that it speaks so regularly and clearly about. Because they've learned something in a class. They've been confronted with something on campus. They've been in the world a bit more, and now they know. And so they walk away from Jesus and walk willfully into a life of sin. But see, I think what actually happens most of the time is the progression isn't a new philosophy to a rejection of Christ to sin. I think it's the opposite of that. That it starts with sin leading you to a new philosophy which leads to rejection atheism often comes for many after being deceived by and falling badly into sin. Because if there's no God, then it doesn't matter how I live. And so I need something to appease my conscience. I slept with my boyfriend last night. I drank too much at the party the other day. My girlfriend and I are deciding that we should live together now that we should engage in these kinds of things that I, I, I want to hold on to everything in my life and just spend on myself, whatever it happens to be. And that, and that happens and there's this conflict that happens within you. So if I can just reject God, then I can go on living the way I want to live. It appeases our conscience. And sin often is the outflow of a rejection of Jesus. But It doesn't just happen in college. It happens at any point in our lives. If we drift away from Jesus, we do so often because of sin, and we end up in sin. But it all comes from a heart that has not been truly transformed by the radical grace of the gospel. Again, the people that the author is talking to are people that have professed faith in Christ, but don't actually possess faith. In another place in the book of Matthew, Jesus says that a tree is known by its fruit. A tree is known by its fruit. And so you could go through life and you could say, well, I'm an apple tree. That's who I am. I'm an apple tree. But the reality of your life, the indication of your life is you're actually an orange tree. Because what's on your branches are oranges, not apples. And it doesn't matter how much you continue to say to others and say to yourself, no, I'm actually an apple tree, though. Because all that you see from that is oranges. But we need to be careful here because what I'm not saying, what the author isn't saying, is then you should just change your behavior. Because if you're an orange tree, you can't make yourself an apple tree. You can't go out and buy a bushel of apples, tear down all the oranges, and glue or staple those to the tree. You don't need just fruit to pin onto your tree. You need a changed root system. You need a changed heart. You need to be transformed. See, there are many people who often say they know Christ but their life paints a very different picture is that you this morning and some of you may be on a path to apostasy right now to walking away from Jesus right now and you don't even realize it yet and again this is why community is so important and we talked about it over the last few weeks Because being together with God's people, gathering regularly on Sunday mornings to worship together to hear God's word preached and taught, to be in community all throughout the week is critical for our life because it helps us to stay the course of continuing to follow Jesus. To walking faithfully with him, to not being drawn off the path of righteousness and the path of life to the way of the world. It's a gift from God that he has gifted these people to you. And so when we start to reject God's people, that should be an indication in our heart that what we're actually doing is rejecting God, having contempt for him and his ways. See, there's a temptation for all of us to claim Jesus when it's convenient, but reject him and his kingdom when it isn't. Well, here's a key point for us in this. The deliberate sinning that the author is speaking of isn't about the action itself, but the indication of the heart that it comes from. It's not just about the outward action, about the internal reality. A heart that is set on self and a false kingdom, not God and his perfect kingdom. A heart that says that I'm the Lord of my life. A heart that says I don't need Jesus anymore. I'm good on my own. That's really the core of what sin is. It's not that outward action. It's not just what happens out, uh, out here or externally, but what's going on in our hearts. And when that happens, the author says very bluntly to us, when we walk away from Christ, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sin because it's Jesus alone who saves you from your sin. But it isn't simply that there no longer remains a sacrifice for sin, but a fearful expectation of judgment. In fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. And that's intense language. And there's a key word in here, the word for. That's how he starts off this text for. And he's looking back to what he just said. He said we should encourage one another. And he called us to encourage one another every day as we see the day drawing near. The day that he's talking about is a day of judgment. When every single person will stand before the judgment seat of Christ and be judged on the life that you and I have lived. And if we reject Christ, then when we stand before holy God and we don't have the righteous cover of Christ, then we will stand condemned. Brothers and sisters, we need to understand that there are real consequences for rejecting Jesus. Jesus. This text teaches us that there is a real judgment. There is a real hell, a place of eternal separation from God, a fury of fire. And again, much of culture, both inside and outside of the church, doesn't like the idea of righteous wrath or a real hell. They believe, and maybe this is you this morning, that the idea of of God's wrath and God's love are mutually exclusive ideas that if you believe in a God of wrath, that you can't also have a God of love. But those aren't mutually exclusive ideas. They're not opposed to one another. They actually go together. J.I. Packer, in his fantastic book, Knowing God, I'd recommend any of you to read it, whether you've known Christ for a long time or are just getting to know who God is. It's a great book. He says this about God's wrath. God's wrath in the Bible is never The capricious, self-indulgent, irritable, morally ignoble thing that human anger so often is. It is instead a right and necessary reaction to objective moral evil. God is only angry where anger is called for. See, we when we read the Bible, we see the picture of who God is, God's concerned for his honor. God, God cares zealously about his glory. He's the only one that can. For him to be self-focused is the right thing to do because all of creation should be giving glory to God. He is the epitome of holiness and perfection. And so God is jealous for his glory and we should be too. And so he wouldn't be any of those things. He wouldn't be loving. He wouldn't be just. He wouldn't be good if he didn't care about or deal with sin and the evil that comes from it. But At the very same time, if that were the case, he wouldn't be worthy of our worship either. But see, our God has and will deal with all sin and evil. All of it. It'll either be in the cross of Christ, as Jesus takes on the sin of the world, or at the judgment to come. He says, vengeance is mine, I will repay. The Lord will judge his people. So I want you to listen here. Nothing that has been done by you, and nothing that has been done to you, will go undealt with nothing that has been done by you or to you will go undealt with. If you were raped as a kid or a student in college, God will deal with that. If you have experienced abuse in any way, shape, or form, physically, emotionally, sexually, God will deal with that. If you've experienced slander, someone speaking ill of you or lying about you or ruining your reputation, God will deal with that. If you've fallen into sexual immorality, if you are living a life of selfishness, God will deal with that. And this is why this is so serious. Because if it's not dealt with in Christ, if we reject Christ, then our sin is not taken on his back, but it'll be born on your back. For all of eternity. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. A God, though, who longs for you to come to repentance, who is patient and long suffering, not wishing anyone to perish. A God who has provided a way for your sin to be paid for, for you to be forgiven, for you to be made new, no matter what it is that you have done. And he does that through his perfect son and his perfect sacrifice for sin. And sojourn, an eternal punishment. Can we even try and fathom that? That is mind-boggling and heartbreaking. An eternal punishment. If you think about the worst pain in your life, the worst moments of loneliness in your life, it's that to the nth degree forever. Forever. When you reject the idea of a righteous wrath or hell, what you're really rejecting in that moment is God himself. Because the reality is, you don't like the idea that there's someone who is sovereignly over you. And again, that's a core issue of our sin, that we are self-declared independent. If we look at verses 28 and 29 again, we see the reality of this a bit more. He's giving this comparison in kind from lesser to greater. He says, if we disobey the law of Moses and deserve death for that, how much more do we deserve if we walk away from Jesus? The interesting thing about this example from the law is it's about someone who's committing idolatry, who's worshiping a false God. Who instead of living for and following the one true God, they've gone off and worshiped false gods. And it's the community, if we go back, it's the community who confirms that we're continuing to walk with God and not falling into idolatry. People often reject Christ because they don't see the promise of future grace. They don't see the hope that is to come in the midst of a broken world, but instead are stuck in the here and now. Whether that's because of legitimate pain and suffering or simply unmet expectations in this life. See, sometimes that subtle drift away from God is because you don't think you should be where you are right now. That your hopes and plans for your life are very different from what reality happens to be. That by now, you find yourself saying, by now I thought I would be married, have a child, be this place in my career. By now. And so we start to create a God in our own image. A God created in our own image instead of the one true God. A God created in our own image of our felt needs instead of the one that's revealed to us in the scripture. And man, all of us can wrestle with that. I can do this in my own life. Instead of finding my value and my worth and my identity and who Jesus is, I can very easily find it in what I do, in my work, in my performance. And so things like criticism become difficult, and I can overload myself with personal expectations, and that becomes this God that I start to follow, instead of the one true God who says to me, I love you. See, when a false God disappoints us, which it will always, what we tend to do then is put blame on the one true God. But that's not who our God is, not at all. This leads to our second question. If we understand the seriousness of this warning, then where is hope in this? Where is hope in this? In my U.S. history class in high school, I remember learning about Jonathan Edwards. It's just a part of history. Jonathan Edwards is a well-known preacher in New England that was a part of what's called the First Great Awakening. This, this massive revival, spiritual revival that took place in America in the mid-1700s. And, and what we learned about, for most of us, and maybe this is you, for you as well, is uh, probably what's known as his most well-known sermon titled Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. And it's likely that he took that title for that sermon from this last verse. It's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. So there's this sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. And and if we read it from the history books, it's touted as kind of a, a fire and brimstone sermon of harsh judgment and condemnation that people were feeling condemned, therefore they converted. But see, the reality is is that when Edwards preached, he often never raised his voice. He didn't yell. In fact, most accounts of his preaching is that he leaned over the pulpit with his notes in front of them, read them word for word in a monotone, emotionless voice. Yet God used that to transform a city, to transform a people. Through that sermon and many like it, many, many people came to faith in Christ. And get this, most of them were people who thought they were already Christians. They were confronted with the reality that they weren't actually living for Jesus. They had claimed the benefits of Christ, but not Christ himself. Yes, they were sitting in and among the church, but they were wholly embracing the world. In that sermon, Edwards painted a masterful picture of the realities of hell and judgment for those who chased after the world and false gods of their own making, whatever those happened to be, money, relationships, your status, your career, your family, comfort, pleasure, whatever it is, but he didn't do it by crushing people. He he didn't do it by smashing people over the head. He was pleading with them out of love and concern, just like the author of Hebrews is, just as I hope I'm doing for you today. Do not harden your hearts, but turn in faith, in real faith, to the real Jesus. Where is hope? It's found in Christ in who he is and all that he's done for you. See, we have to remember that this warning is coming to this original audience. This warning is coming to you now, before it's too late. It's a gift to us. See, we've already seen a picture of a gracious and patient high priest. That's what all of Hebrews is about. And so this warning has to be seen in light of that hope. Standing in the presence of God apart from the righteousness of Christ should be a scary thing for us. But Christ has made a way. He went to a cross and he exchanged something with you. He took on your sin and he gave you his perfect record of righteousness so that when you stand before the judgment seat of God, God looks at Christ's perfect record. and allows you to be in relationship with him. It's a picture of radical love and scandalous grace. See, sometimes I think we can struggle with wrath against sin because we don't understand how awful our sin and rebellion truly is. How offensive to a holy God it is, and the cost it actually takes to pay for it. But what Jesus endured on the cross gives us a picture of that. Packer, again, in his book, Knowing God, says this, talking about Christ on the cross, he says the physical pain, though great, was yet only a small part of the story. Jesus' chief sufferings were mental and spiritual. And what was packed into less than 400 minutes was an eternity of agony. Agony such that each minute was an eternity in itself. And he did that for you. He did that for you. So if you find yourself this morning in this place of having really or functionally rejected Jesus, or you know someone who has, what's the solution? It's to avail yourself again, take hold of again now and continually the grace of God found in Jesus. in not your righteousness, but his perfect righteousness. His sacrificial death for your sin, his glorious resurrection. Where he now sits at the right hand of the majesty on high interceding for you because it is finished. In Christ, your hope is now and forever. Verse 31 says that it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. But it can also be a joyful thing if we trust not in ourselves or our performance or our status, but in Christ. There's a story in the Old Testament in the book of 2 Samuel where David disobeys God. He takes a census of the people out of pride to kind of count his kingdom. And so God goes to David and he says, David, you need to receive discipline for that, but you get to choose what that discipline will be. You know what David chooses? He chooses to fall into God's hands. Because when we come to God in faith, it's those hands that don't administer punishment, but gracious discipline. like Like a potter with a lump of clay, like a gardener pruning or trimming a tree or a bush it's a process of shaping and cutting and molding and pruning so that we might bear actual fruit and it can be painful at times but it is a gift to us these are the hands of God that were outstretched on a cross for you nailed with spikes through the hand so that you might receive grace upon grace upon grace and be welcomed into the hands of a loving Father who loved you so much that He gave His Son for you. Church, don't set aside Jesus. All of us will stand before the judgment seat. Judgment is coming for every person, no matter who you are, no matter what your background is, no matter how much you've accomplished in this life or haven't accomplished in this life, no matter what your skin color is, judgment is coming for everyone but Christ has taken that on for you. So this morning, I want you to think about this for yourself first and then think about other people God's put in your life. Are you just professing faith or do you actually possess it? Are you an apple tree or are you an orange tree who just keeps saying that they're an apple tree? Listen, if you've walked away from Jesus, come back to him today. His grace is sufficient for you, no matter what you've done. And if you've never trusted in Christ by faith, come to him today. His grace is sufficient for you. If you wait till you clean your life up, if you wait till you're better, you're never going to come. And if you are walking with him, if you are an apple tree who's bearing fruit, my encouragement to you this morning is to keep your eyes fixed on Jesus. Keep following Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, because you know what? His grace is sufficient for you too, now and forever. And see, when we are people who really believe this text, that there is a coming judgment for all people, then my hope, what that does within our hearts, as much as we're grateful for Christ in our own life, is that our hearts will be broken for those that we know who have strayed away from Jesus. Those that we know that profess faith in Christ, but we don't know that they actually possess faith in Christ. That our hearts will break for those who don't know about Christ at all. Our hearts will break for them because we know what awaits them apart from Him. And that we'll go in love and care and concern after them. Sojourn, the hands of the living God are open to you, either to judgment or to grace. So choose the gift of grace today and every day until Jesus returns or calls you home. As we come forward this morning to take communion, I want to encourage you to do something. I want to encourage you to just maybe hang out in your seat for a bit. The band's going to come back up on stage and get set back up and play some music. I just encourage you to to take some time to think and pray and come before God in honesty, confessing your sin and then running to Jesus. Running to Jesus. His arms open wide for you. This is not some rote ritual that we do week after week. It is a means of grace to you. It's a gift from God to you to help you keep moving forward in and towards Christ. And so when you come to eat the bread, hear the words spoken over you this morning. Christ's body was broken for you. And when you drink the cup, hear the words spoken over you this morning. Christ's blood was shed for you. Apart from Jesus there is no sacrifice for sin. And then let's celebrate the grace of God together by responding with singing and praising the God who has made a way for you and I to no longer be sinners but saints. No longer orphans but adopted children into his family no longer dead, but alive forever. And if you're not a follower of Christ, we would just ask you not to come forward this morning because this is a declaration of how desperate we are for Jesus. And so my hope is this morning that what you've been confronted with is the reality that God extends that grace to you. So if you don't yet know Christ, I just ask you to hang out in your seat, but talk to God about that. Start a relationship with Jesus today by saying, Jesus, I need you. I don't even know exactly what that means but I know that I can't do this on my own. I needed you to die for my sin. Confess that to God and let somebody around you know. And the next week you could come forward and take communion with us. Those of you that will come forward, you can come to the tables in the front or the tables in the back. And remember, hear those words spoken over you today. Let's pray. Father, we pray this morning with the the notion of Colossians chapter 3, if then Christ has been raised from the dead, let us then set our gaze on him. Let us set our eyes on him, fix our eyes and our hearts on Christ, where Christ is seated above, not on the things of this earth, knowing that one day that we will be made just like Jesus, experience the fullness of your glory, And so, Father, this morning, I just pray for my brothers and sisters here. I pray that we'd have some time to reflect, some time to pray, time to confess sin. Lord, I pray that you would wake up sleepy Christians this morning. Lord, I pray this morning for people in this room that have been calling themselves followers of Christ maybe for five years or 20 years or 50 years who are professing it but don't actually possess it. Lord, would you give them life today? genuine faith today. And Lord, those other people in our life that we know of that seem so distant from you or have wandered far from you, would you bring them to mind right now? And would you give us boldness and grace and humility and love to go after them and call them back to the one true hope, Christ our King. Lord, bring revival, bring awakening that we might experience another great awakening here in Fairfax not because we're scaring people with judgment or scaring people with hell, but we're putting the beautiful picture of who Christ actually is before people. Would you call people to yourself? Would help us to believe today and every day that Jesus is better. We pray this in his name. Amen.